This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And as always, I'm here with Maxwell Vogue. How are you doing, Max? I'm good. How are you doing, Joris? I'm great. I'm great. I'm on Valencia. Where are you hanging out? Ooh, I'm still in Boston. <laughs> yeah? So, yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. How are you weathering everything? We're, you know, we're getting through. We're, uh, we're hopefully going back to New York soon, but we're, uh, we're still waiting to see when, as, as is everyone with our breath held. How's Valencia? Yeah. Oh, Valencia's wonderful, man. It's a, it's a really, really nice town. It's really beautiful. And I'm loving the food and I get to go to the market every day. So I'm, I'm very, very happy here. That's very nice. All right. So today we're joined by Jos Berger. And Jos uh, is a person with a very, very long experience in investing and bringing companies to acquisitions or, or to market. Uh, and uh, Jos is now currently CEO of uh, Ultimaker. Uh, welcome to the show, Jos. Great uh, talking to you. And by the way, Valencia is a great place. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, Not bad at all. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. I really like it. So Jos and I, actually, it's really funny. Like the first time I, I knew Jos is uh, we're from back in Shapeways, when he was actually the head of the venturing arm of Philips, who was actually like funding Shapeways. So that's the first time I got to kind of meet Jos when I worked for somebody who worked for somebody who worked for Jos or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long, long time ago. <laughs> a long time. I worked for Peter and he worked for Carlos Schwicker and, and Carlos worked for Jos. And then later on, when I worked at uh, the Ultimaker, uh, Jos was there as well. So it's uh, very funny. But uh, so we're here today to talk a little bit about Ultimaker and a little bit about how the company's growing and what it's doing and, uh, and the, the, the kind of crazy growth uh, it, was, it was at. So when I was there, when I got to Ultimaker, I think there were 80 employees and we were spread over three farmhouses. And, uh, and then, then we spread out to a fifth, like a different office space. And then at yeah. one point, I remember there was a guy from Metrology uh, Institute that was doing, was doing like a metrology project for Ultimaker. And then... Um, and then the guy was like walking with me in these offices that were kind of like <laughs> everything was kind of scrounged together. And, and then and then the guy said out loud, he didn't mean to say it out loud. I was like, oh my God, they're sitting on the floor. <laughs> 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 and, everything was, and everything was like super kind of like ad hoc and stuff. There was no process for anything. And then in those, a short time I was there, all of a sudden there was like ERP and there were forums and there were like people in shirts and stuff. And, and uh, so it was a real... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was a really exciting time to to to, to be there, and I think uh, I think Yosef there, I think uh, uh, during that whole period as well. So it was, it was a very exciting, I think, uh, time. So, so Yosef, how has the the whole the Ultimaker experience been for you? It has been fascinating. You know, uh, I started in three D printing, as you said. You know, uh, by uh, helping Shapeways basically getting funding in the United States. Uh, it was two thousand seven eight. It was really in the early days. You know, a lot of hype. Uh, still this belief that every consumer would have a, uh, a 3d printer at home yeah <laughs> a lot of brands a lot of names you know if i remember well that in even 2013 if, if you would ask a consultant to basically present the state of the market you would get a complete christmas tree full of logos and names and then so on that really was lost uh because it was the early days you know it's quite similar to the early days of automotive for instance i mean in the um, 1910-20s or so, I think there were close to 100 brands in the United States only. And uh, <laughs> it reminds me of what happened in, uh, in 3D printing. But yeah, but Shapeways was basically the first uh, encounter with uh, 3D printing. And it was Peter Reimershaus, the CEO of uh, Shapeways, who said, you know, you should be talking to those guys in Galdemalse. It was uh, late 2013, because they are sitting on, on top of something, you know, they're doing well. Um, they have a few million revenues, so well perceived in the marketplace. But, but of course, now they have to grow this company to something far bigger, and that's not their, well, that's not their experience. And uh, and I'm, I'm I'm still here, and you know what what we have seen the last uh, six seven years is uh, is amazing. I mean, uh, the company itself, uh, because as as yours knows, you know, in the early days uh, when I joined, I mean, they were working in a in a, in a small farm, farm like house, an old school. And uh, twice a year, the, uh, the factory floor uh, faced some flooding of a small river close to the. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but people were they were quite adapted, 
uh, they, yeah. they were used to that. So, uh, you know, they, they saw it coming and then all the stuff was basically put higher and then they waited for, for the water to, uh, to disappear and then you, you were good to go. Of course, great in the early days of Ultimaker, not really, I would say, uh, the ultimate basis for uh, growing it into a scale, more scalable organization covering the, uh, the world. Uh, but yeah, it has been an amazing, uh, amazing trip, you know. And uh, you know, I, I was today. I was in Utrecht and uh, back in Salbommel uh, the other day. And I'm really proud to see how the company, the people itself, you know, the people really, how they built built it, built this into what Ultimaker is is today. And uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm a proud guy. It's uh, it's one of those stories, you know. You want to be part of it. It's uh, has been great. When did you become the CEO? Yeah, well, actually, immediately in 2014, but we called it COO. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I said, you know, one of the uh, founders, you need to be this, you need to be the CEO. I, I always want to see the one of the founders, especially in the early days, being the, uh, you know, the, the founder CEO, founder slash the CEO. But uh, but but I I took full operational responsibility, and we decided to match that with the uh, the actual uh, content so meaning ceo and uh, until now the founders are still involved eh? i mean they're still shareholder in the company cervinia is actively involved in the uh, in the engineering department uh, in a kind of a you know C cto role um, yeah yeah and and uh, yeah very committed still involved um yeah but some, someone had to do all the other stuff, you know, you have to build a global network, you have yeah. to do marketing <laughs> and sales and supply chain, manufacturing and finance and legal and yeah, all the boring stuff that you need to do. Yeah. It's gotta be done though. <laughs> yeah. And how did you, how did you, well, how, how do you start then? I mean, first I think you have to, you have to win their confidence. I think I was still there when it was like this big idea, like, do we just trust yours? Right. That's the only time I think I've been asked as a, as a reference for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, uh, but, but it, how did you do that? I mean, you, they don't know you, you know, it's kind of, you come in there, it's like, you know, you can, you can come across either very uh, overbearing maybe, or, or very corporate. How did you manage to get them to trust you? Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the best is of course uh, to, to ask, uh, ask them uh, because they will probably be, better positioned uh, to give the, the right answer. But uh, looking back, you know, what I feel is that uh, by being deadly honest uh, about the state uh, the, the company was in, deadly honest about the, the opportunities, but also deadly honest about all the stuff that needed to be done to grow it into what it is today, was basically the basis for the, uh, uh, the trust. Uh, yeah, and it took a few months, you know, to get to, get to know each other and so on and so on, uh, but also, um, you know, it was so so obvious what needed to be done, needed to, to be done that in a few months we were able to to take some uh, to take some decisions that immediately had a positive effect on the business. For instance, when I joined, the company was still doing a combination of direct sales and indirect sales. You know, and that was quite conflicting uh, and creating a lot of um, confusion in the marketplace. And we cleaned that up. In, in a few months, uh, and then we immediately focused on completely the indirect uh, uh, channel infrastructure, which by doing so, we gained a lot of trust from the channel partners. And of course, that trust was also conveyed to the founders and so on. I think it's a combination of those things. Did you find it easier to switch over to B2B rather than a B2C? I mean, I get how it's complicated doing B2B and B2C. So by streamlining that, did you find that you were able to just kind of make it more efficient or was it also that you needed those partners to be more involved? Well, it's a matter of definition what we mean with B2B and B2C. Yeah? And, uh, and the reason I, I'm, I'm saying this is that all, already uh, in those days, what, what we faced is that a lot of the users, they were actually engineers. You know, right. and engineers working in companies, uh, but but quite often, you know, taking uh, a certain risk by by buying a machine themselves and then playing at home, or also engineers convincing their boss, "Hey, listen, guys, this is the the next big thing. Let us buy an Ultimaker, and I will prove that it works." But 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 quite often we were we were dealing with engineers, uh, so I would not say typical consumers. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
in my opinion, you know, also from in the early days, we were talking about a kind of a uh, B2B approach, although it was quite, quite, quite focused on individuals, uh, champions, uh, either in, co in companies or universities, or people at home, and then proving their case, and then going to the boss, listen, I have that thing at home, and see what it does. You should also be focusing on that. Yeah, it's, it's more in, in that, uh, let's say, context that uh, I saw things happening. And also, I think I think one other advantage, of course, of, of going indirect is cash flow. Is that is that especially for a really have rapidly growing companies? Is that a, a consideration? Or? Well, it's uh, it's two sides of the same coin, I guess. I mean, if you go for indirect, um, uh, you basically build a, a much better infrastructure for scaling up uh, the, the the sales of a company. Uh, in, in, uh, we were, we were selling direct into countries like Kuwait and Japan and so on. I mean, and then sending an invoice to Japan, you know, right. not, in, not aligned with anything that is required locally. Then you had support, <laughs> you had service and all that kind of stuff. It sounds easy, but indirect is, if you do it right, it's extremely beneficial and it really helps you scaling up a company much faster than, than, than you can do alone. And, you know, there is a reason why companies like, like Microsoft, for instance, are so fiercely focusing on protecting the reseller network. It is for this reason. Uh, yeah, and that paid off nicely. But I, I really think uh, you should never make a mistake by do, trying to do both. Although there is kind of a blurred version, what they call enterprise sales. But that actually means that you go out to enterprises, you make your case, and then... Uh, you enter into global contracts, but you always leave the handling and the fulfillment to local resellers. Also, the, the service, local service and support, the maintenance to local resellers. So, um, uh, yeah, it, works, it, it has worked well. And more companies, uh, and I, I gave you the example of Microsoft, but it also Autodesk, SolidWorks, you know, more in the cat space, uh, same stuff. Uh, and are you worried then? Because the, the, the worry I always have with an indirect model is that you always kind of, you lose some contact with the market. You may lose what your end users are doing. You may lose what their, what, what the problems are, uh, who your yeah, customers are, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a very valid point, uh, yours. It's a really valid point. Um, it's a matter of, uh, I would say, st structuring the relationship with the resellers. Um, and especially if you can, uh, if you if, if if you can afford a tier one tier system, where you directly work with the resellers, uh, mm -hmm. you have to be very close to them. You have to support them. You have to mm -hmm. almost talk to them every day. Uh, and but also important, uh, an important element is that you have to uh, allow them to make money on top of the printers. So if they want to do consultancy, yeah. if they want to do training, all that right. kind of stuff, please do so. And of course, in exchange, I we think it's it's fair to ask the resellers to share relevant customer data with us, not for us to reach out directly to the customers, but to really understand where our systems are being deployed, how they are being used, you know, what the trends are in the marketplace, what we need to change and need to do in the next generation of our hardware, software, and so on. Um, so you, yeah, you're right. I mean, you really have to get an understanding of who the users are for that purpose. And why can I, because it seems so obvious, and I, I, th I think it even would work in an indirect model, is to just say, at the time of purchase, to say to a corporate, pay this much extra for an SLA or a service contract or something like that, or 50 bucks a month or something. I mean, the companies you're selling into now, that kind of thing is no problem. Is, is that something you're thinking about, or is that still too difficult? Right? No, no, it's, well, it is, uh, I've done it before in my life, and uh, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, and do it again <laughs> man, man i mean you can burn it you can be you can get burned if you uh if you don't fo focus on the right stuff here the point is well coming back to your point we are already doing it in terms of uh, warranty extended warranty you know like mm -hmm. in the united states we have the extended warranty package uh, which extends the, the warranty period with another two years but that's basic warranty uh, the big thing is that uh, over time, of course, what we want to be is a company that is uh, selling solutions to the marketplace where hardware, software, services support, but also e-learning are combined in specific offerings. And what you will see coming forward, uh, looking to the future of Ultimaker, is that, uh, that we will invest and keep investing big time along those lines. So I expect also Ultimaker to offer more industry-grade service and support packages 
to uh, global enterprises, uh, right. similar to what HP and others are doing. Uh, we already have, sorry, come on, yeah. No, go on, go on. No, we already have a piece of software, Cura Essentials, that we launched uh, two months ago, which is taking away a lot of the, uh, the issues that IT companies have uh, using open source software. It's still open source, but we guarantee that the software is validated, 24-7 support, well documented, there is release management, all that kind of stuff. Typically all the things you need to do to, to make an IT department happy. Uh, but, the, but we really see that as a basis of further expanding the software offering with all kinds of relevant uh, modules for uh, highly demanding uh, uh, users, companies. Um, and mm -hmm. part of that will also be a service and support uh, uh, package and full access to what we call Ultimaker Academy, so the complete e-learning uh, stuff. And, and that e-learning thing, is that something you guys are going to offer? Or is that in combination with the resellers? Or how is, how is that going to work? Yeah, well, what we do is uh, we see ourselves as a kind of an OEM. So we produce, and we have produced, and we keep on producing uh, a lot of content that we make available to the marketplace. And any reseller can use that also as, uh, let's say, material or basis for uh, uh, local uh, consultancy or training or whatever they want to do. It's really up to them to, uh, to pick it up and to translate that even in a local language, lo local language in specific course programs where they can make more money out of uh, uh, the, uh, the offerings. Where do you, where's your largest market regionally these days? Well, uh, if you take the market of uh, you know, companies like AutoCAD and uh, uh, Dassault, and CNC and so on. You, if you take those markets mm -hmm. and you take the world map, you can copy that and put that on our map, and it's exactly the same. Right. So it's really <laughs> the industrial. It's really the industri it's industrial nation. So usual suspects. So if you look to the the overall breakdown of revenues, I would say a third is uh, North America, United States, um, about forty percent even. Then forty uh, percent is EMEA. Um, and in EMEA, the focus is really on uh, DAG, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, which is close to 15, 16% of global sales. Yeah. The, the German stuff, that means it's staggering. <laughs> then U UK, France, Benelux, and the Nordics, those are the, I would say that represents 80% of the, uh, the business in Europe. And then in the Far East, it's uh, the other usual suspects, Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, Thailand a little bit, uh, and, and you know, and we are trying to figure out how to best position Ultimaker in China, which is uh, an interesting. You and everyone discussion. else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and and your revenues are, I mean, you can ballpark it or say what the last shared figure is if you're not uh, comfortable sharing that. But but your revenues are like the order or the growth or, or what are you comfortable discussing on that front? Yeah, well, I'm not totally free to. Uh, <laughs> No, no, to give oh, you the details, but, but let's yeah. say in, in, more general, in general terms, um, on a, uh, uh, if you want to compare apple to apples, so uh, if you take the total revenue of uh, uh, our sales, uh, that's, you know, the number of units and the materials and that times, you know, of course, the, uh, the customers, and you compare that to the likes of uh, Formlabs, for instance, then uh, we are more or less at the same level. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. I think it's interesting that you have an ownership situation that I think is you, you have an investor. Well, you've got so, some, you got, you managed to capitalize yourself first via, I think, an ECB loan, right? Yeah, the European um, Bank. Yeah. 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 Oh, I, 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 I loan. So, first off, why did you do that? Because that's actually quite, that was actually quite an unexpected move, I think, for a lot of people in the industry at the time. Why did you go towards for a loan for, in that period of the, the company's history? Oh, well, this is quite, well, yeah, it's a good question. It, it's very simple. Um, uh, the founders, uh, having the majority of the shares, uh, they really needed to. They really needed more time to figure out what the best model would be going forward. And I supported that. I mean, I understood that uh, because this is uh, this was completely new to them. And uh, we were being chased by the European Investment Bank. They said, you know, we want to do business with you, and it was a perfect intermediate solution for us. Very fair, fair terms. Uh, it, is, it has helped us big time, um, you know, in order to grow to a point where uh, also the founders felt more comfortable opening the door and then under my guidance and leadership, 
I started discussions with uh, potential investors, leading to the uh, equity investment of NPM uh, in October 2017. Yeah, so you could have you could have sold the whole thing to a big company. I think I think that was an option. You could have gone through more. You know, I think we stage C VCs kind of uh, kind of blow up the blow up the balloon as big as we can kind of companies. Or uh, but instead you decided to opt for a, like a Dutch private equity investor. So yeah. why why was that a choice? Why, why was that a choice that made sense for you? Yeah, well, I mean, given the uh, without being too specific, uh, but given the nature of the deal, that was the best for the company to do. Uh, and not, there's not much more I can say about that. And I, I'm, and I perfectly supported that, and I still support that. Um, and it helped us, you know, growing into what we are today. And now, of course, we have we still have the option to do this. You know, right. still, yeah, it's even better now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many oh, uh, printers has Ultimaker made at this point? Until um, now, we are close to one hundred and thirty thousand. Nice. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and the funny thing is. Um, you know, I'm, yours knows, you know, I'm a Dutch guy, so we're pretty straightforward and also, you know, uh, not too much bullshit. Yeah. But uh, the, 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 uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed, always amazed to see very old Ultimakers working everywhere over yeah. the world. I, and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think, oh, there's the good machines, yeah, but, it's, <laughs> you know, but it's also an issue. I mean, and someone told me, oh, <laughs> you want, you want them, people to buy new ones. <laughs> Yeah, just, there was this there was this 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 guy, this professor in Stockholm and uh, the ETH, you know, the technical university, and he invited me over to the premises to you know, the huge print rooms and this and that. So we walked into the print rooms and there were all kind of hippies there working, you know, people with tattoos, things in their nose and whatever, and then doing all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and he said, I think you as Ultimaker you have a problem. I said, What do you mean? He said, Look here, this is an Ultimaker two, yeah. five years old. And the thing still yeah. works. And if there's something, <laughs> something happening to it, it's very easy to repair because mm. you've opened up. You are an open by nature, and because you're open by nature, we can we can repair this thing. You know, there's always a component available somewhere in the world through you or someone mm. else. And uh, but 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 I see that as as really as an asset showing to the marketplace mm. how reliable mm. the ultimakers are. So uh, I I see it as a benefit. But I call that the Subaru problem because I've noticed that as well. And it's even I think it's even worse because that means that if you've had a Subaru for 15 years and you've never had problems with it, you'll be like, next time you're like, oh, I'll get me a, you know, another car. So you'll go for like some like sexy, sexy brand or something that actually sucks. I can't name anyone because, uh, yeah, it's, it's the wrong industry to be annoying at the moment. Um, uh, but, um, but then you'll go for like a lower quality vehicle. Uh, well, because because you're so flippant about the, the, the having a car, because car ownership has changed for you, you know, because it's relatively yeah. uh, 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 is relatively problem. That's all free. Yeah, but, yeah. Really, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, but and and you've mentioned open a couple of times and open source a couple of times. I mean, I think a lot of people's worry was when you brought in investment, when you started the kind of like uh, growing the business uh, significantly, that you would lose that uh, the, the open source ethos and even maybe even lose the entire open source component. Has that been a struggle for you or? No, not at all. Uh, because we prove on a daily basis that we, uh, that we are committed and we stay committed to, uh, to open. It's one of the key assets of the company. Nice. So, uh, we, we're not going to change that. Um, um, also in terms of the material alliances and the profiles and the plugins and that kind of stuff, you know, it's, it's available to, uh, to people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we will never, we will never lose that. Um, mm -hmm. now we'll be, do be, we'll be deadly. Uh, we will be stupid, you know, even, mm -hmm. and, and we, we strongly believe in being, in being open. Um, and, and it, even if you are open by nature, what we are, you can build a sustainable business. Mm -hmm. So why changing that? There's no need to. Yeah. And what are some of the advantages then of being open then? Nah, okay, look, it's, it's, um, we are open by nature, not only the software, but also the hardware. Uh, we talked about uh, the ability of people to tweak and work on the hardware without being confronted with an army of legal uh, guys mm. who tell them they can't do that. So, so that, that's a clear benefit. And I've seen people doing crazy things with Ultimakers and we are completely okay with that. And in terms of, uh, of software, it is, it is really important that we keep that, that, that openness because it also unleashes 
creativity, you know, at the side of the users. I mean, 30% of our business globally comes from universities. 30%, eh? I mean, you're talking about the MITs and the, the technical universities in Germany, the Netherlands and the UK and, and whatever. And, uh, and they love open. And these are the engineers who start working with Cura, play with that, love the openness and add, figure out you know, all kinds of stuff around it. And after their study, they turn into, you know, uh, well, employees in the company and, and they stick to us. So it's, it's also an investment in almost a religion. That, that keeps paying off the moment people you know, uh, transfer from universities into companies. Have you seen that come back in the sense where there have been innovations from the open market that you've then reintegrated into new versions or new iterations? Yeah, yeah, we still see that. Uh, it's becoming a little bit more complex because of the complexity of Cura, because that's increasing too. Right. Um, and there are two levels of, um, I would say, uh, involvement. First, people actually... Uh, coding, listen, saying, listen, I, I built this piece of software uh, on top of Cura, uh, can you have a look at it? And the other thing is that uh, because of the openness, uh, the people, well, also, you know, a lot of people, they just uh, approach us with ideas. Right. So I know this can happen with your software, wouldn't be great if you do whatever. And uh, yeah, um, I mean, we have seen uh, another, another example. You know, we have uh, a, 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 this, this, this material program where we basically invited all the, the big, well, big and smaller material companies in the world uh, to, uh, to work with us. Where we say, as long as we're dealing with engineering plastic, it, it can melt, you know, and it's not, let's say, beyond 300 degrees or so whatsoever, we guarantee you that it works with an Ultimaker. And we work closely together with them in order to tweak Cura uh, by building these profiles, these material profiles, in the most optimum way, so that a company, people in the company, only have to download a profile into Cura, and then they're good to go. And quite often, the profile itself is being uh, produced by uh, the engineers and those companies, and 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 we allow them to do so, and we are more than willing to support them there. Uh, because it's part of our open uh, open uh, philosophy. Yeah. And and, you th and and just generally, I mean, you guys are always like the, what's really in vogue now is this whole ecosystem thing. So you've got the the ultimate essentials with the training, you've got the material alliances. Um, you know, is the ecosystem uh, approach your 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 present and your future still? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the basis of our uh, future future success. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, as I explained before, it is about being able to uh, to offer a full platform to the marketplace where hardware, software, services, support, e-learning, you know, it's all coming together and can be deployed in a wide variety of industries and in a wide variety of applications. So we really see it as a, uh, as a yeah, it's, it's more than a philosophy. It's, it's, it's really a strategy. Um, which will, will help us doing the right things and keep a focus on the right things. And that is increasing the relevance of the platform, allowing people to, uh, to use the platform in, in, in applications where, where Ultimaker can really make a difference. You know, I'm not talking about series production. I'm not talking about replacing injection molding, uh, but we're really talking about, of course, the classical domains of uh, prototyping, but also manufacturing aids, replacement parts. Right personalized objects, you know, stuff like that. The real uses rather than everyone's dream that it's going to like replace no, injection no, real molding. actual uses. And you know what? I mean, forgive me for being enthusiastic, uh, but I always am when I talk about Ultimaker. Uh, the uh, people quite often ask us, you know, what is then hampering or what are the barriers for further adoption? If the benefits are so clear in terms of cost savings, lead times going down, uptimes improving, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we have fantastic use cases in, in, in companies like Miele, L'Oreal, and Ikea, and Heineken, and give it all a name. You know, a whole bunch of customers. And the bottom line is, it's not the hardware, a little bit of software, but that's all improving in, in a very fast pace. Uh, but it's all about knowledge. It's all about people. It's all about processes. It's yeah. about stuff like that. You know, if you look to... I, I, I talked to, I can't, I, I won't mention the name, but it's this huge company. 
and there is a lady running the 3D uh, or the additive uh, uh, division. Fantastic. Highly motivated, uh, evangelist, champion, um, I mean, a dream for every, com every company. And the benefits of using Ultimaker are so clear that the frustration is there that it's not, it's just taking, in her opinion, of course, too much time for the rest of the company to adopt. The resistance is there, people don't like new stuff, they don't not like new procedures. Uh, you've, you've, of course, also vested interests because of, you know, if you look to specific industries, they are being served by a handful of uh, uh, machine manufacturers and, and they make good money out of spare parts. So if a company then, um, you know, installs a handful of Ultimakers or other machines and start producing spare parts at, at, a, at a cost that is only a fraction of what they're paying those machine producers, then you can imagine that the, uh, the willingness to cooperate with, of, of the machine producers is, is not, uh, well, it's not overwhelming. Um, so it's all these kind of elements that, uh, that, that we need to overcome to really um, fasten and, and increase the adoption of 3D printing in general. Does that mean you're going to be doing more application development? I know you a little bit from the from the from the, the business development department, but like for example, Stratasys and AOS have like consulting arms, or Stratasys had one and AOS still has one. Uh, they have consulting arms to to make that kind of like that adoption rate increase. Is that something you're looking at as well? Or yeah, we're doing it. We started investing yeah. three three years ago in mm -hmm. uh, initially what we called business development, but in essence, it's business development in combination with application engineers. And we do it in the main markets, like for instance in Germany, we have a few people uh, driving around. And what they do is they go to uh, companies in specific segments, and uh, and they they do side scans. Uh, they they help on the, the people there understanding. They help them understand what they can do with three D printing. They identify one or two use cases. Uh, we 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 help them to get going by giving them loan printers, and uh, and then you know they prove their case. And, and then we have, you have to organize the rest around it. Yeah, we're doing that ourselves. That's, that's, we see it as our responsibility. Also because uh, we don't believe the market is mature enough to outsource that to, to others. It's too early. Mm -hmm. It's too mm -hmm. early. Yeah. And also, like one other thing, have you, uh, like, we don't really have systems integrators in, in, in 3D printing that much or we don't really have them that exist. So, so there's no company that says, oh, I'm going to turn this Ultimaker into a medical printer or I'm going to integrate it into a production line or something. Is that also something you miss or, or due to lack uh, of maturity or? I would say this is an issue for the whole industry. Right. Uh, it is really an issue, um, but I'm not surprised. You know, I started my career in, in CAT and AutoCAD and SolidWorks and that kind of stuff. It was exactly the same thing. It was sold as a on a per piece basis, you know, with some to a champion in a the company. They started working that on the what we call the the PCs of the Middle Ages, and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust me, <laughs> I I still have a few at home. You wonder how that ever worked, but anyhow, it's uh, so so in, the, in those early days. I mean, you didn't have value added resellers. It took between five and ten years for the whole reseller network. To mature to a point that you could really identify two or three players per country having the ability to do training and consultancy and that kind of stuff it just takes time i mean uh, terry wallace uh, the last time i talked to him um uh, you know a year ago so three quarters of a year ago i don't know we were talking about uh, uh, this specific i also think he, he talked about it in one of the podcasts with you and and, and he, he typically says, you know, it takes 10 years. It just takes 10 years for an industry to build a relevant network of value-added resellers, uh, build the knowledge, build, et cetera, et cetera. And that, the same is here. So you're right. I mean, it is something we have to overcome and we have to work on uh, as an industry. And, and now, okay, you're focusing on the enterprise. It makes sense. I mean, you've got, there's a huge gap between even the, the lowest entry level Stratasys machines still, right? If yeah. you look at like, even with all the stuff, it's like, I think eight, nine K or something for S5 with a cabin and everything. Yeah. Um, and then still there's like a gap of five to 10 K between, between the next printer. Right. Uh, so it's open, right? There's a couple of companies like kind of targeting that market now for the first time. I think it's you guys in BCN are really the only ones that are actually really taking it seriously. 
everyone else is kind of clustered below you at like two and a half thousand K like the craft bolts and all these guys of the world. Yeah. And then there's like these Creality and Onnet and all these guys are like yeah. 200 and 300. So now you're the Ultimaker offering starts at like, I think it's two and a half thousand for Ultimaker two. Yeah. Are you worried that, for example, in Africa, we all know Africa right now, the volume isn't there. You said, yeah, the industrialization uh, and, and, and also the, the, the money is, is another problem, of course, investment and capital available. Are you afraid that like these university students and these hackers and people in, in, in lower income countries are not going to be able to connect with the Ultimaker brand because your price point is more elevated than it used to be? Well, I mean, there's always so far. We, we, we will never go beyond, below uh, 2000. You know, we will, we will, we will never enter the, uh, let's say, the mass space. Uh, we just don't. We strongly believe that it's all about basically offering, you know, platform solutions to the marketplace that ha have a certain value that people are willing to pay for. Uh, so that, that is the focus of, of what the Ultimaker is doing. But given the fact that we have a strong commitment to universities, we believe that we should uh, indeed be able, you know, to offer them a solution around the 2K uh, uh, price point that is, uh, yeah, that's hopefully uh, good enough for them to get going. And I know it's more expensive than, than uh, Creality or XYC, but we really have to add more value. We will, we will continue to add more value on top of that through the material support, the software, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but but we will never go below the 2k we, we, we just don't uh, we don't want to be in that space and mm. I, but, yeah. and, I, and I agree with you there is uh, there is quite a window in mm -hmm. let's say the space 10k till 20k or 25k yeah, yeah mm -hmm. that's uh, yeah. that's a huge opportunity uh, and again mm -hmm. I can't I'm not really free to talk about it but mm -hmm. uh, you can trust me if I say that we have a very productive focus on that sector. <laughs> of course, uh, it's obvious. I mean, I think it's obvious. I think the interesting thing is that we're seeing strategic replication in all those separate verticals, like and the, the lower end of the business, the mid-market and, and, and uh, the higher end now. Yeah. We're seeing everybody's essentially doing the same thing. The higher end guys are doing ecosystem plus two to 5K moving up to 10, right? Yeah. The mid-market guys are getting more features and colored screens and stuff, but they're not, and they're doing a little bit on the software front, but they're not able to, they don't have the margins through the ecosystem but they're, they're more capable offerings, right? And then the lower end guys are just duking it out over 100,000 units, and then they're also moving up. I mean, yeah. to a certain extent, just because of like, it's and it's classic innovator's dilemma. And the interesting thing is everyone's doing the same thing. And it's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, it's, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's it's really weird. It's like it's like it's like the innovator's dilemma creates its own like, like market segmentation or something. It's, like, <laughs> uh, it's it's a really strange thing. But but to me, it would be really simple to maybe make the Ultimaker two and just make it the same one and then just keep making it fifty bucks cheaper every year. But even something yeah. like that would not be an option. It's or, it's not as easy as that though. <laughs> no, yeah, no, 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 I know. No, it could it could be an option. You know, but you can also think about other solutions where. You have financing programs. Uh, yeah, you know you, you could do you can do so many things. You can do stuff in combination with the cat guys. Uh, you know because because we also talk to them, of course. You do packaging. Uh, you know there's so many things you can do. Uh, but but till now, uh, you know if I look to the to the universities, um, I mean, you know I feel very comfortable uh, because if I go there, if I go there. I always see different types of Ultimakers running. It is the Ultimaker mm -hmm. 2, it's the 3, it's mm -hmm. the S5, it's the S5 bundle. I mean, mm -hmm. they have a complete mix of all kinds of, of uh, Ultimaker machines for different purposes. And uh, so we feel quite comfortable in, in keeping that, that, that focus. And it is proving uh, to be, well, at least till today, to be right, because we have a very constant and growing um, mm -hmm. Uh, revenue uh, base in, in universities, despite mm -hmm. the competition of the, uh, let's say, the cheap Chinese and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's really interesting, you kind of touched on that. Leasing is very, very exciting. I, th I did a couple of projects also met Ultimaker years ago about leasing as well, where it was a bit early then. But you were saying, hey, the machines last long. That's one of the things these kind of equipment lease companies really, really like. Uh, maybe the market is big enough now. Leasing, I think, is really exciting. And at the same time, Carbon, of course, have this model where you pay a subscription, like a hardware yeah. subscription. 
Yeah. And those kind of things, and I know investors love this, right? So we, we touch, we keep touching upon this hardware as a service kind of thing in these podcasts. So I think, is that something you're considering or looking at or not really? Well, we are doing it, uh, but we yeah. do it um, oh, okay. more, more indirectly. Um, it's it's uh, some big resellers and big distributors offering this as a service in, the, in, in the, their countries, like in the UK and Germany and the US. Uh, so it is, that, huh? yeah, yeah, it's being done. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, it is, it is very, it's very exciting. I think also for local government and stuff like that, and and and, and some of these right. places are seen as rock solid for credit. So it could be really yeah. uh, not if they're allowed. Um. Yeah. What and you also, also, and then oh, sorry. sorry. Now what you also see is that you've got uh, you know companies like in the United States, and they uh, they always go into those uh, you know big tenders as mm -hmm. a kind of a financing company. So they try to win a deal. And once they got the deal, they go out to us and others and said, "Now, guys, we uh, can we talk?" So, yeah, it's 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 really, I mean, the different flavors to that. Yeah. And 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 so, what do you see the future is is is, 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 is uh, or what do you hope the future is for Ultimaker? If we're looking like three to five years in advance, what do you hope to to be able to achieve together? Well, I mean, what we really hope is that uh, we can make our claim uh, that we, that we, that we really can make the claim uh, work that there is a huge market, a huge market uh, in front of us in terms of uh, uh, not only prototyping, but also manufacturing, uh, what I talked about, manufacturing aids, tools, jigs, fixtures, and that as an industry, we are, uh, we are able, as an industry, because I really feel it's not only automatic, but as an industry, we are, we are really able to, to prove that uh, 3D printing is here to stay, and, um, and you know, and, and completely conditional component in, in, in every workflow in every company. And it is happening today because mainstream adoption is now evident. I mean, it's it's not low, no longer a novelty. It's really a business productivity tool, you know? Yeah. So the whole maturing, it's, it's, it's happening as we speak. And what we need to do, what we really need to do as an industry is build, help building this network of value-added resellers, but also offering beyond hardware, the software, the servers and the support tools, etc., uh, for companies to, uh, you know, to, uh, to get going. And uh, yeah, that, that's why I see uh, Ultimaker uh, uh, basically succeed in the next uh, two, three years. You know, and I, I can't be, again, I can't be too detailed about specific customers, but we have a customer that has 150 locations globally, 150 locations globally. And they have deployed Ultimaker in four locations. Um, and the cost is going down 90%. The uptime, it's 200% better. Uh, it, it's, it's perfect. And the only thing they do is locally, if they need a component, they go to a digital warehouse, which is uh, Cura, etc. They download an object, they print it overnight. The other day, they put it in. That's 10 machines per location. That's 40 machines. The, 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 the opportunity is to expand that to the other, you know, 150, 145 locations. Mm -hmm. And that will happen. And then you're talking about 1,500 printers as a starting point. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do again with the printer. It's just helping those customers, really getting the internal barriers away for further adoption. And that's what we have to do as an Ultimaker. And we also hope that our competitors are doing that because then as an industry, we will all benefit. I think I know who the company is. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, Let's not say I get anyone in trouble. Zero percent. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you also know about my day job, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, so um, so uh, also one thing I think I think it was really funny. I was thinking we were just talking about the, the previous age. I mean, when I worked at Ultimaker, we had a uh, there was a closet behind me. And in that closet were, I think, about 50 MacBook Airs, right? And if you're a new Ultimaker employee, somebody would tell you, go behind Yoris, and they'd open the closet, and then take out a MacBook Air and put their name on a sheet of paper, right? <laughs> and then, and then if, the, if the MacBook Airs ran out, I was supposed to tell someone in the front office, like, we don't have any MacBook Airs, and they'd order another 40. <laughs> 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 it was just the craziest thing. So I'm just thinking of that that was the most absurd thing. It was just closet, and then at one point, we didn't have a key for it, so it was just like, it was open. <laughs> you know, it's open. Like, Again, open, yeah. open. Yeah, Here right. you go, take one. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we, we, we changed yeah. the procedures a little <laughs> bit. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was 
this is insane. But I was just thinking, like, like how do you? So, like, a lot of people, like, I think the VCs that they talk a little bit very abstractly about scaling, like it's some kind of philosophy or something. Yeah. But to me, it was that very practical stuff. You know, how do you get new nozzles, right, for the printers that you're using at your desk? It was yeah, all that cool. stuff. <laughs> yeah. So that was like that went from the other way around because, like, at one point, first you just walked into the warehouse, you grab the nozzle, right, <laughs> and then we had to like log into the system, use this number, and it had a code, and then nobody understood it, right. And I kept bothering these people so much that they actually ended up delivering it to me. <laughs> so, so you know, how do you go that? Well, what's the actual practical side of scaling if you're going to a, 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 a startup like that? Yeah, I mean, you're re really referring to the romantic phase of the company. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. No, but why don't you know? We still have a lot of people working from the old days, and uh, if you come together, it's all about you know stuff like this. Uh, yeah. and, and of course, you know, big smile on the face of people, and uh, but but of course not really sustainable because scaling up means that that you have to do things differently. You know, I think the bottom line is is that um, you always have to take the endpoint in mind, and and knowing what the endpoint is, you start working on what is really critical in bringing the company to the next phase. For instance, um, yeah, sales at the reseller channel key. Without sales, everything else is uh, is bullshit. So. Um, so that that was of course a clear focus. So not direct sales, indirect sales mixing, but complete focus on indirect sales and enabling the channel. But also supply chain and manufacturing. It's great to have a machine, but you need to have the components to assemble machines, and you have to you need the machines available for the marketplace because it's it's completely you know it's a death, it's a sin it's a sin not having not having stuff. People want to sell, and if they can't buy from you. And they had they have to wait two three months before they get their stuff. You know that's that's uh, it's almost terminal. So we, right. we 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 had a very strong focus on further uh, improving the supply chain and manufacturing operations with the ERP and a new factory and this that kind of stuff. Right. But simultaneously, of course, you know, you you need to invest in marketing. You need to invest in HR, and it's all about getting the right people on board. I mean, it's all about people, 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 and. Uh, and that, that's the, probably the toughest to do because in the early phase, when you are a small company, you know, all those highly qualified people working in, in medium-sized or larger companies, they, they look at, at, at you, and in this case me, and said, well, nah, maybe a little bit too risky to join. Um, so you have to work around that. And now we are in a phase where we can uh, really, you know, recruit the best uh, people coming from all kinds of different places. But we have one big requirement we don't want these typical corporate guys. We want people who are really hands-on. You know, in that sense, uh, the DNA of the company is still the same as five, six years ago. So if you see something that is that's wrong, don't start a project or a process and so on. First, see if you can solve that by making your hands dirty. And of course, if you can't, we have to turn it into a project. And, and But first of all, roll up the sleeves and do it. I think that's probably the most important uh, in, in scaling up a company. Did you have an idea on how to maintain culture or, or, or how to create that or how to like make sure that you kept the values in place? Yeah, well, I'm in, in a way, I'm in that sense a simple guy. Um, of course, that's also driven by, uh, by experience and my personal experiences. I, I personally, I have a very strong belief that company culture for 80, 90% is uh, determined by uh, role modeling. Uh, that is, the right people at uh, you know the first two levels, the management levels of a company, they should set the example. They should show what we believe are the values that we should commit to. Um, and and of course, we all make uh, mistakes. I also I also made mistakes, you know, in hiring people who, at the end of the day, were not really a fit with uh, with, with our company. And mostly, mm -hmm. most of the times, it had to do with behavior and uh, uh, an attachment to values. So, um, personally, yes, I believe it's really important. And the best way to do that is by hiring people who, uh, who show the, uh, the example and set the example. If I try to define like why Ultimaker is successful, I think the funny thing is that the company started with three guys that were doing workshops to build RepRap printers as yeah. opposed to selling a printer first. So the idea was if I couldn't assemble the RepRap printer, I would go to them and they would be doing the customer service and they would be actually repairing me and helping me repair the system, Yeah. right? 
that was the early day DNA of the company. And then they started getting a laser cutter. They put it in the, uh, in the, the kitchen, right? And then it was in the kitchen, and uh, well, somebody's wife was really annoyed, and so they they, they happened to, happened upon this is literally true. They, they happened upon a farmhouse, and then they're like, "Oh, okay, let's do it here because it's around the corner of my house." Yeah. And then then it all of a sudden became a business. I think if they would have sold systems, I think it's different. Other companies in the same era were just pitching kits over the hedge, but the guys came from a background where they were customer service. The founders were customer service. So I think then you're going to make a better product. You're going to care more about what your customer experience. Because they're going to come back to you and say it doesn't work. Yeah, you know, you're so absolutely so right. And uh, and one of the things that uh, you always lose a little bit uh, in in growing a company is uh, having direct access to to users. Because you know, I in the old days I had access to a lot of users and and resellers and so on. But of course, if you grow the business, uh, that's not really sustainable anymore. Uh, but I deliberately also seek contact with specific users people are, are, are more than uh, you know open they, they they can send me an email they can call me my number is everywhere so some people do and <laughs> yeah I it's a, a similar problem <laughs> no but i love doing that you know yeah. and, and people are always surprised and you pick up the phone or or whatever you know you react on my email uh, or and a linkedin request and so on but it's so easy to do and and uh, you know, it, 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 is, it is the DNA of the company. Um, so we, we try to maintain that, but it's becoming, yeah, a little bit more challenging, of course, once you, uh, uh, where we are today. Okay. Hey, Jos, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was a really, really wonderful conversation, and I uh, really enjoyed uh, bringing up some memories and looking towards the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, so Max, thank you very much for being there as well. Oh, always. This was fascinating. Thank you for your time. Yeah, guys, and, uh, real pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you, everyone, for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Keep your suggestions coming in who we should uh, be interviewing and talking to. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.